yesterday, <clears throat> according to the internet, it's only about nine countries that celebrate a Thanksgiving. <clears throat> Maybe more than that, I don't know, but that's what they said, about nine. Um, but really, the origin, although there were, you know, there is even a Thanksgiving feast in the Bible, the, the, the um, uh, Feast of Tabernacles, I think it is. That's the end gathering the harvest and all that. And that's sort of what Thanksgiving is. So in a sense, you could say you know, it doesn't have its origin in America, but really it does, um, as we think of Thanksgiving. And its origin goes clear back to the Pilgrims of 1621. But I want you to think a little bit, uh, before I get started here, uh, the background of that. And this was written by William, William Bradford, who was, the, I guess, the governor. And... Uh, says, uh, and, you know, what brought about this Thanksgiving. He says, and I quote, I may not here omit how, notwithstanding all their great pains and industry, and ye great hopes of a large crop, 
the Lord seemed to blast and take away the same, threaten further and more sore famine unto them, by a great drought which contained, continued for three ye three weeks. This is written in Old English, by the way. Ye three week in May to about middle of July, without any rain and with a great heat for ye most part, insomuch that as ye corn began to wither away, though it was set with fish, the moisture whereof helped it much. Yet at length it began to languish sore, and some ye drier grounds were parched like withered hay, part whereof was never recovered, upon which they set apart a solemn day of humiliation to seek the Lord, ye the Lord, by humble and fervent prayer in this great distress. And he was pleased to give them a gracious and speedy answer, both to their own and the Indians' admiration that lifts among them. For all ye mourning and greater part of the, of the day, it was clear weather and very hot, and not a cloud or any sign of rain be seen. Yet toward evening it began to be overcast, and shortly after to rain, with such sweet and gentle showers, as gave them cause of rejoicing and blessing God. It came, weather, it came without either wind or thunder, or any violence, and by degrees in abundance, as that ye earth was thoroughly wet, and soaked therewith, which did so apparently revive and quicken ye decayed corn and other fruits, as was wonderful to see, and made ye Indians astonished to behold. And afterward the Lord sent them such weather as through his blessing caused a fruitful rejoicing, for which mercy and time convenient they also set apart a day of thanksgiving. So that was really the background of, the, of what most consider to be the first thanksgiving uh, in America. Uh, but anyway, Psalm 100. Let's, let, I'm going to read this entire psalm. It says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. The title of this message this morning, Enter His Presence with Thanksgiving. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity that is ours to be gathered together this morning. Thank you for what we've heard already in the Sunday school hour, how it encouraged and challenged us. And Lord, we pray now as we look into your word in this hour, we pray that the Spirit of God would work in our hearts and help us to realize our need to be thankful uh, to you at all times for your goodness and your blessings to us. And Lord, just pray that you would be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you probably, as we think about holidays, probably Thanksgiving is the most scriptural of all the holidays of the year. Uh, and yet, probably the most overlooked. You know, we were driving through Youngsville uh, this week, Daniel and I, and Daniel says, look, they've got Christmas decorations up already, and it's not even Thanksgiving. What the world goes from Halloween to Christmas, that's what they go for. And that we forget all about giving thanks to God. Uh, but again, as God's people... Thanksgiving should not be limited to a certain day of the year. The word thanksgiving means the act of giving thanks or being grateful acknowledgement of benefits or favors, especially to God. That's Webster's definition of thanksgiving. You know, the Bible uses that word thanksgiving in many places in Psalm 26, 7, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. Psalm 50:14 Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the most high. Psalm 69:30 I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 95:2 Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. Uh, here verse 4 Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Psalm 107:22 let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Psalm 116, 17, I will offer thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. 
Uh, Psalm 147, verse 7. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise unto, upon the harp unto our God. Uh, you know, Hebrews 13, I believe it's verse 15, says, Let us offer unto God uh, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Sacrifice of praise. Even the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. So, so we are to offer thanksgiving unto our God. Uh, James Fawcett Brown, in his commentary on this psalm, says, This psalm is a general call on all the earth to render exalted praise to God, the creator, the preserver, and benefactor of men. Unquote. So as we look at this psalm this morning, I want to look at several things about it. First of all, the condition of our thanksgiving, or you might say the manner in which we to offer our thanksgiving. Verse 1 says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Uh, when it says here to make a joyful noise, it's speaking of a triumphant shout. That's what the idea is. A triumphant shout. A joyful noise. In Joshua chapter five and verse or chapter chapter six and verse five, this word joyful noise is translated shout. Remember when they marched around Jericho, the Lord told them, and and you and and and, and the, you know the seventh day, then you're to give a, a great shout. But in Psalm uh, 108 verse nine, it's translated triumph. Now, since thing, the song we sang in Sunday school this morning. First verse says, Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing, and triumph evermore. See, those, those things all go together. And the idea here is a triumphant shout. It's a victory shout, if you will. A victory shout. Uh, for example, in Psalm 126, Verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Now, this, the, according to the commentators, they believe this psalm was written at the time that, that God delivered Hezekiah from Sennacherib. Remember that? They were surrounded, and, and, God, and, and Hezekiah took the letter from, from Sennacherib and took it up and, and laid it before the Lord and cried out to God. And, and God sent an angel and slew 185,000 Syrians in one night. And so this is their song. This is their, their triumphant shout. It says, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them the dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue was singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. So there was this triumphant shout. Triumphant shout. Uh, the Bible tells us that, that uh, 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 in First Samuel, Chapter 18, 1 Samuel 18 and verse 6, uh, when, when, when David and Saul were returning from the, the slaying of the giant Goliath, it says, And, the, and David went out whithersoever Saul sent him, and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as it came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And again in chapter, uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 15, again, when David brought up the Ark of the Covenant, there was, there was singing and dancing and shouting. Uh, it's, it's a victory shout. And the psalmist, throughout the, the, the psalms, especially from Psalm 100 on, uses this phrase all uh, continually. Psalm 149, verses 1 through 5. I will extol thee, my God. O King, I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty works. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty, and of thy wondrous works. Uh, Psalm 109. Actually, I was supposed to read Psalm 109. Verse 1, Praise ye the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise in the congregation of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let, him. let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with a timbrel and harp. The Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. 
Let them sing aloud upon their beds. The organ even wants to get into it. Uh, so, you know, we're to sing aloud. We're to have a triumphant shout. Again, Psalm 150, the whole thing there talks about praising him and, and praising him with, with loud symbols, verse 5 says. And so it's a triumphant shout. It's an enthusiasm. It speaks of enthusiasm. You know, kind of the idea of a fan. You know what a fan is, don't you? It's really short for fanatic. A lot of people are football fans and baseball fans and basketball fans, and really they're basketball and football and baseball fanatics. The word fan means uh, an enthusiastic devotee. You know, you know, some of you watch football, you, uh, you get to shouting and yelling. And I was downstairs one evening in the office. I, I'm sure I was studying, you know, being real spiritual. I, anyway, I was downstairs in the office, and, and, and the family was upstairs watching a football game. You know how I know they've watched a football game? So every once in a while here, I'd say, here, here, yes! Or a woo! There was obvious some excitement and some enthusiasm going on up there. I'm not sure who they were what you're watching or who they were watching, but but there was there was a triumphant shout every now and again. And so that is to be the manner of our thanksgiving. We are to have a triumphant shout to the Lord. Uh, so so secondly, we see here the condition or manner is of joyful service. Notice again, verse two says, uh, "Let us serve the Lord with gladness." Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. The word gladness means joy or pleasure. We are to serve the Lord with gladness. Deuteronomy 28.47 says this. This is speaking about the children of Israel. And God just made some promises about how he would bless them in the land if they obeyed him. But he said then. Then he said. No, that's not talking about. That's not the same triumphant shout there. But anyway. He says, because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness, with gladness of heart, for the abundance of all things. And he's saying, you know, if, you know, if you disobey me, I'm going to bring the enemy into the land. And he said, here's the reason it's going to happen. Here's why it's going to happen. Because you serve not the Lord with joyfulness and gladness. For the abundance of things. You know, when we start looking at the commandments of God as being difficult and hard and unreasonable, you know what's going to happen? It isn't going to be long until we aren't going to obey Him. We aren't going to do them. When we forget that God has given us all these things for our good, for our protection. You know, I remember hearing a message years ago, uh, and I don't agree with this guy on a lot of things, but it was an excellent message on dress standards that helped me a lot. And he gave us three reasons for dress standards. One, for distinction. Two, for separation. And the third one was for our protection. See, many of the things that we, we read about in the Bible that sometimes we look at as unreasonable, God gives them for our protection. For our protection. You know, many times our children will say to us as parents, why do you have to be so, why do we have to, why can't we go here? Why can't we do this? And why can't we? It's because we're protecting them. It's because we're protecting them. They may not understand at the time. But if they will obey, they will understand later. And when they become parents, they'll really understand. You see, it's for their protection. You, God gives us all these things for our protection. And when we will not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, when the things become the importance, that which is important and not the one who gave it. 
You know, that early church in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46 that says, And they continued daily with one and accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, these are the same people that many of which just lost their families, their livelihoods. Because in the same context of that passage, that verse I just read, there's those that are bringing their goods and giving them to disciples and all men had everything common. And the reason they were doing that was because some of those people that got saved were cut off from their families, were cut off from their employers because they joined this church, first church at Jerusalem. But yet they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Speaking about the coming of the Messiah in, in Luke one fourteen says, And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and men shall rejoice at his birth. And so we are to come before him, or we are to enter into his gates, or into his courts, with singing, with a loud triumphant song, with joy and with gladness. By the way, when you think about coming into his uh, come before his presence and into his gates Entering into his gates and his courts, as it says in verse 4, you're talking about into a place of a, a, a personal zone. The, the, the kings in the Bibles had, had, had a court, a courtyard, and an inner court, and only those who were invited were allowed into the court. And if you were not invited into the court, unless the king held out his scepter, it meant death to you. So remember, we are privileged to enter into his gates and enter his courts. And so we need to do it with a triumphant song and do it with gladness in our heart. So as we consider, considering the, considering the, uh, the condition of our thanksgiving, but also, also, secondly, the comprehension of our thanksgiving. Uh, we, we are to be thankful because we know several things. We are to be thankful for the things that we know. You know, not everybody knows. There's three things here that we know. Number one, that's verse three. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pastures. Things that we know. We ought to be thankful for the things that we know that the Lord is God. Now, I know that sounds simple and basic. And to us, it does. It is very basic. But many people don't know that the Lord is God. In fact, there's a lot more people that do not know that than that then do know that. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Isaiah 43, 12, I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there is no strange God among you, therefore ye are witness, my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Mark 12, 29. Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. But unto us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. And Paul's writing here to the church of Corinth. He says, you know, oh, yeah, you know, he's talking about eating meat, sacrificed to idols, and he's saying an idol's nothing. But not everyone has this knowledge. To us, there's only one God. An idol is just a piece of stone or a piece of wood or whatever it is. It's nothing. 
It's dead. But not everyone has that knowledge. So you can thank the Lord that you have the knowledge that there is, the Lord is God. And he's the only God. Because not everybody thinks that way. In fact, the vast majority of the world doesn't think that way. So, to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, 1 Corinthians 6, 8, 6, and we in him and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we by him. Ephesians 4, 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So we can be thankful that we know the Lord is God. The Lord is God. Secondly, we can be thankful we know that the Lord is our creator. Again, verse 3, it is he that hath made us. Obviously, if you don't know that the Lord is God, you don't even know who made you. But we know in the Bible, God's word, Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Job said this in Job 10, 8, Thy hands have made me and fashioned me together round about. Yet thou dost destroy me. Psalm 139, verse 16. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. In, all thy, in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Jeremiah 1, verse 5. Before I formed thee in the belly, thou knewest me and fashioned me. Look at, look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Again, not everyone has this knowledge. Acts 17, verse 22, says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars hills and said, You men of Athens. Now, and again, now, 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 let me stop and say something here. This is the educated of the day. These are the educated people today. And many times it's the educated people in our day who deny that God made them. And who deny that there is a God or that the God is the Lord. He said, you men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious, for as I pass by and beheld your devotions, I find an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Sounds like a lot of people today, doesn't it? Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and that hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitations, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are his, also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art or man's device. So he says, you know, we're the offspring of God. I mean, he's not far from us. It's in him we live and move and have our being. And we are his offspring. In other words, we are his creation. He made us. You know, having the privilege of knowing we were created by God and fashioned by him, you know, we, we, have, we have a purpose. And it prepares us. Just having that knowledge prepares us or helps us to understand our need to make him Lord of our life. That's basic. You know, a person can't come to the knowledge and truth of salvation until they understand that God made them. That God made them. And so we can be thankful, number three, that the Lord is our Lord. He's our Lord. You know, it is he that has made us and not we ourselves, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So we are his children. He is 
our Lord. If you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior from sin, He is not only your Creator, but He is your Lord and He is your Savior. You can say, He is my Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, verse 1. You can say with Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, that we are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we are not all the children of God by because we are his offspring. No, we are the children of God because by our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the liberals believe in this fatherhood of God, fatherhood of man thing, you know, that we're all the children of God by creation. No, we're not. We are all his creatures, all his creation, but we are not all his children simply by the fact that he created us. And so what a, what a privilege to know that we are not only his creation and that he is the Lord, but that we are, he is our Lord. Our Lord. And because we are his children, we are also the subject of his care. You notice there again in verse 3 it says, we are his people, at the end of the verse, and the sheep of his pasture. You see, we're the sheep of his pasture. And he tells his sheep to enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Only, now think, I want you to think about this. Only to the shepherd will the porter open the door to the sheepfold. Go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Only to the shepherd will the portal, by the way, in John 10, I believe the porter is the heavenly father. The shepherd, of course, is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's our shepherd. John 10, verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and robber. If you're trying to get to heaven some other way, then putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord to save you from your sin, you're a thief and a robber. You're trying to get up. You're trying to get into the sheepfold by going over the wall or something to that effect. And you won't, it, won't, it won't fly. It won't work. Verse 2, but he that entereth by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth. Again, I believe that's speaking of the father. Him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. In other words, they hear the voice of the shepherd. And he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of the stranger. You see, if a person is truly born again, they ought to follow the shepherd. They ought to obey the word of God. And if you had a false shepherd, you'd say, something doesn't sound right here. And you'd flee. You know, I was listening to a series of tapes one time years ago on this passage, and this, the preacher told a story about two shepherds who came from different directions, met in Bethlehem with their flocks, met in Bethlehem and conversed for a period of time. Their flocks intermingled with each other, and then they left and went two different directions, and all they did was call their sheep. And those sheep all followed their own shepherd. They didn't have trouble with the sheep flocks getting mixed. See, a stranger will they not follow, he says. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. 
As the Father knoweth me, even so I know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 26, but ye believe not. You can hear the Pharisees. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And so, so we are the subjects of his care. We are the sheep of his pasture. He will take care of us. He will provide for us. He will lead us beside the still waters. He will restore our souls. You know, the job of a shepherd was to provide and protect his sheep. And so, we are privileged to know that he is our Lord. He is our shepherd. And then thirdly, considering the recipient of our thanksgiving. Notice verse 5, it says, For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Oh, we ought to give thanksgiving under our God as we consider who he is. Number one, our Lord is good. He's good. Second Chronicles 5.13 says, It came even to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising the thanking the Lord, when they lifted up the voice of the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good. For his mercy endureth forever. Then was the house filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. Now, of course, that was when Solomon's dedicating the temple. Psalm 25, verse 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he will teach sinners uh, in the way. Psalm 54, 6, I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. Psalm 84, 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. In Mark 10:18, speaking to the rich young ruler, Jesus said to him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one. That is God. You see, our God is good. And, and God is not only good to us, his children, but he's good to his enemies. He's good to his enemies. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 43. Matthew 5, 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Isn't that humanity? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even publicans the same? If ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. You see, the Lord is good to everyone, whether they're his children or whether they're his enemies. I was thinking of Sunday school this morning about Ahab. God's good to Ahab. Very good to Ahab. I mean, Ahab has killed the prophets. Obadiah has hid hid the prophets, you know, hundreds or several hundreds of the prophets in caves and fed them with bread and water. That's prison food. To try and hide them from Ahab and Jezebel. And here he is, he's killing the prophets. 
And God shows them on Mount Carmel that he is the Lord. And then the king of Syria comes to war against him, and God again gives him the opportunity to say, to know that I am the Lord. And he gives him victory, after victory, after victory. You know what I want to do with Ahab? I want to cut his head off. But you know what? God's good. God's gracious. God is good. He makes the rain to shine on the just and unjust alike. Secondly, there's no end or limit to his mercy. It says in verse 5 again, For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting. And as you think about his mercy, it is infinite in scope and everlasting in its duration. Psalm 103. Look at Psalm 103. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thy iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He hath made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and is gone. And the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children. You see, the Lord is merciful. You know, I think a good definition of mercy is verse 10. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And the reason he hasn't is because he's merciful. You know, mercy is the idea. You know, grace is, grace is the unmerited favor of God showed to us. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. That's really what mercy is. God not giving us what we deserve. If we got what we deserve, where would we be? We'd all be in hell right now. Because we are, a, we are an offense to a holy and righteous God. Every man in his best state, psalmist said, is altogether vanity. Yet, you have known people, just like Ahab, that have rejected the Lord. You have been given notice. You've known people like this, I'm sure. Given notice, they're going to die. That's the mercy of God. Because it could have just taken their life just like that. And yet many times they continue in their rebellion and rejection of him. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord, his mercy is everlasting. But I want you to notice the, the third thing here, the, the final thing, that his truth endureth to all generations. He is he's not only merciful, um, and he is good, but he is immutable. That word immutable means he's unchanging. He does not change. His truth endureth to all generations. Uh, John seventeen seventeen, thy word is truth. You know, he, God, it, the word of God, does not change. 
God's laws, His standards of holiness, His expectations of us, what pleases Him does not change with circumstances, with different people, feelings, or favor. It doesn't change. Yeah, there's security in that. We can know what God expects and what pleases Him. You know, one of the one of the great struggles of being a parent. One of the greatest struggles of being a parent, I believe, is this: being consistent with your expectations of your children. Not changing for the circumstance, or not changing because you favor maybe a certain person. Being consistent. That's that's difficult. Well, with God, that's no problem. He doesn't favor anyone over another. You know, sometimes we get the idea that God has his pets. No. There were those that were closer to Jesus, but you know why they were closer? Because they chose to be. They chose to be. That's why. There's security in that. We can have confidence in knowing what God expects. Could you imagine being a Catholic? You know, Bill Barons had this discussion with, and he's out in Kansas one time. There's in, school, in Kansas, there's this group of Catholics who still do all Latin. You know, they're, they're the old school Catholics. They say the Catholic Church today is liberal and apostate. And they're the old school Catholics. I mean, they, if you were to look at them on the street, the women look like, like Mennonites or Amish almost. That's how they dress. They have, you know, they're more strict in their dress standards than we are. But it's all for works. It's all the wrong reason. But anyway, this guy come in who's studying for the priesthood. They were in a restaurant, uh, him and Steve G. And, and this guy come in, and of course, Bill Barron's was raised Catholic, so he offered him a track, and he didn't want to take it. And so Bill started talking to him. He said, uh, he said um, and he told him this. He said, the reason I like my God better than yours because I know what my God expects. He doesn't change. And he began to list. You know, he, he knows Catholicism. He began to list all the changes that are take place in, in the Catholic Church over the years. How they've changed this. And they've changed. You can study all cults, and they're constantly changing. Nothing remains the same. And that guy, he said, you could see his wheels turning. But see, our God never changes. So there's security, there's confidence in this fact. And if you are a sincere seeker of the truth, willing to obey it, you will always end up agreeing with God. There's many a scientist set out to prove creation a farce. And came to the conclusion that creation was the truth and accepted Christ. Many an atheist, Josh McDowell, set out to prove that God was not. And came to the conclusion that God is. And Jesus Christ is the most, has, uh, is, is the most substantiated fact in history. And his resurrection is the most substantiated fact in history. From the from the from the the, the uh, position of a lawyer, looking at it from a lawyer standpoint, Deuteronomy thirty-two four says this: He is the rock; his work is perfect; for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. First John four six: We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth us not. Heareth not us. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Hebrews thirteen eight, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. His truth endureth to all generations. Psalm 92, verse 1 says this, It is good to give thanks unto the Lord 
and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. Psalm 147.1 Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto God, for it is pleasant, and praise is comely. The word comely means it's fitting, it's proper, it's becoming. Because of who he is. Might, you know, we ought to remember to enter his presence with thanksgiving. We have much to be thankful for. We have much to be thankful for. And so we ought to come to him with a triumphant chat. With joyful service. Thanking him for who he is. And that he has made us. And that we are his children. To thank him, him that he never changes. And that his goodness is continually extended to us. Is he your Lord today? Is he yours? He is good. But he's also holy and righteous. He will not overlook our sin. It must be dealt with. It must be answered. And it was when Jesus went to the cross and paid for our sin. So is he your Lord today? Can you really enter his gates? Can you enter his courts?